You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Um, so this morning, we are going to be, begin a new series, as Brendan said, um, in the book of Exodus. It is called Out of Bondage. So for this whole year up until Advent, we are going to be walking through the book of Exodus and um, kind of just examining God's covenant with his people and how he delivered them from bondage. Um, So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7 this morning. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you do not own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that copy with you as a gift from us today. Um, So if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Good morning. Happy New Year. Hope you guys were able to enjoy your time with friends and family over the holidays, specifically celebrating uh, the New Year's, and uh, hopefully you didn't keep people like myself awake that were trying to get some sleep. So, um, so uh, like Jenna said, we're going to be, uh, we're starting a series today, um, uh, going through the book of Exodus. Uh, by the way, if you don't know me, my name is Ty Gaston. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church. And over the, over the next year, we're going to be examining the book of Exodus, but we're going to be doing it in three different mini-series. So instead of just having one large series, which it, it kind of is, we're going to break it up into three different parts because we believe that Exodus is broken up into three different parts. The, the first one, like Jenna said, is going to be out of bondage, and we're going to talk about God's redemption uh, of the people of Israel and his covenant that he makes with them. And then in the summer, we're going to tackle the middle portion of Exodus, uh, where we're going to look at, uh, it's going to be called the mountain of God, where we're going to look at Mount Sinai, and the, not only the establishing of God's covenants as well, but also the giving of the law. And then after that, the back portion of the book, we're going to be looking, uh, it's going to be a series called Heavenly Shadows, where we're going to be looking at the building of the tabernacle and how that paints a picture for God's people, both then and now, to enter the presence of God. And so we're really excited about it because we believe that Exodus um, is really foundational for the entire new covenant. And, and we're going to explore that a little bit today. So uh, what I hope to do today is to set a foundation for the rest of the series. Because the book of Exodus is pivotal for all of biblical theology. It, and if you don't know, there is a difference between systematic theology and biblical theology. Systematic theology is where we may sit down and talk about a topic, angels and demons, Uh, doctrine of sin, doctrine of man, doctrine of God. We may sit down and talk about a topic. Biblical theology is understanding who God is in the middle of his story. Using God's story, understanding the story of God to understand God himself. That is a biblical theology, which I would argue is more important to the everyday life of the believer 
than something like a systematic theology, even though that is important as well. Uh, so Exodus is, re- is really the foundation of all of biblical theology, and we hope to tackle that here in this series. And I hope you're excited for it because just like Jonah, we believe that this narrative form that's done in the Old Testament is going to be really beneficial for uh, not just us, but you as well. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and then we will move forward. Would you pray? Father God, we come before you today, and for one, we look back on 2021, and whether it was filled with triumph or trial or a little bit of both, we, we are grateful for what you have done. God, even the, even the dark days and the light days, they, they both have your hand in them. And so, God, we ask that as we reflect on the past year, that you would help us to learn from it and grow in wisdom. And as we embark on a new year in 2022, that you would help us to do so uh, with a uh, restored faith, with a joy in our salvation, with a joy for you, Jesus. And we may live uh, in a more full way, not only giving you glory, but bringing joy and the gospel to the community around us. So, God, as we approach your word, may it shape us this morning. May it help us to be transformed in our minds and the way that we think. Help us to understand that we are redeemed people when we trust in you. Help us to understand that, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I am a sucker for a good story. Uh, It's... Uh, if you know me at all, you know that I, I, I pretty much every single year I cycle through all the major stories. So by that, I mean, I, I watch Hunger Games every year. I watch Maze Runner series every year. Um, I read Chronicles of Narnia. I watch the Harry Potter series, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, all the Marvel movies. They all happen every year. It's pretty much my cycle of what I watch. And it's because I love a really good story. Uh, one of the ones that really, like, I got really sucked into pretty deep was uh, was the Star Wars thing. Uh, that happened in 2019. So when, uh, when The Mandalorian came out, it s- kind of swept the world. And it even drew me into it because I, wasn't, I was not a Star Wars fan at all. But I remember in Thanksgiving of 2019, uh, all the family was over, and I sat down. I was like, you know what? I'll watch one episode. And it was done so well. It was produced so well, and I was, was immediately drawn into the story. And I, I watched the full thing through as much as I could, as much as it would allow me to watch through in the, seri- the, the, sh- the shows that they had out. I watched it and enjoyed every bit of it. My whole family did. It was awesome. We were so eager for the next one. But what that first series did was it sent me on a tangent from that point on, I'm watching every single thing I could get my hands on when it came to Star Wars. Not just the Mandalorian series, but all the movies, both the good ones and the bad ones. You know what I mean by that. Um, and then all the new ones, I watched every animated series. I watched every uh, YouTube video that was made about it. I was so addicted to the story and the character arcs that were being told. I thought it was, thought it was incredible how they did it. How they tied one large narrative into multiple different uh, avenues and platforms. And what I learned was the Mandalorian itself was good. Like if you didn't watch anything else and you just watched that series, you would really enjoy it. You would enjoy every minute of it just like I did. I watched the entire first series with with, with almost no Star Wars background knowledge except who R2-D2 was. That's it. 
that's the, that's the only knowledge I had, but I still enjoyed it. I enjoyed the storytelling. But after spending that next year before the next round of Mandalorian came out, spending that next year going on a tangent, understanding the meta-narrative that was being told, when I watched it again, it had a whole new feel, a whole new meaning. So when, when the guy with the green lightsaber shows up at the end of it and everybody freaks out, I'm, I'm also freaking out because I know who it is. But if you, if you don't know anything about it, he's just another guy with a lightsaber. It lacks, it lacks significance if you don't know the context. It's the same thing. Like, I, I remember seeing Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe in theaters when it first came out, and I was not a believer. I enjoyed it. It was good. I skipped school to do it, but I enjoyed it. But whenever I became a believer and I, I got to see the fullness of what C.S. Lewis meant in that story, it, it had so much more significance. And that's what we see here with the Bible. Because the Bible's the same way. You can look and read the, Old, the New Testament and enjoy it for what it is because we are now, especially as, if you are a believer, you are now in Christ. However, if you don't know the foundation that set the New Testament up, being the Old Testament, you won't understand it in its fullness. You won't understand the beauty of the meta narrative that's being told throughout the entirety of the Bible. And the book of Exodus is the same way. It's the same way. The book of Exodus is one book in the middle of five books in the Old Testament called the Pentateuch. And inside the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is one story being told about the redemption of God's people. And if you just pull Exodus by itself, it's not good. But what we hope to do is to surround it with context so that way you get the fullness of what God was actually doing with his people during this time. It's incredible whenever we take some time to pause and look at what God is doing at large and also with us every single day. Now we need to be sure, and the reason why we've gone from Jonah which is an Old Testament book, now to Exodus, which is an Old Testament book, and we're going to spend the whole year doing this because, like I said, a large majority of believers ignore the Old Testament, not because they hate it, but just because there's a new one, and they just pay no attention to it. I, I hear people say things like, well, the old doesn't really matter anymore. We just need to focus on the new because that's where Jesus is. And I think by doing that, you are actually removing the amazing redemptive story that really foretold what Christ was going to do for us. Typically, what people do whenever they stay in the Old Testament is they stick to the wisdom literature. So they typically stick to the book of Psalms or Proverbs, um, and they may get in Ecclesiastes, maybe. Um, maybe. Maybe Genesis, maybe Exodus, but for the most part, they just stick to, to Psalms and Proverbs. Or they're aware of the Old Testament stories, but just enough to not actually know them. Like, I, I wonder how many of us went into that Jonah series saying, like, oh, yeah, I knew the story of Jonah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the guy with the whale. And he, yeah, didn't he get spit up onto the shore after three days? Yeah, I know, I know Jonah. I would imagine we would say the same thing about Exodus. But when we got into Jonah, we realized, oh, my gosh, there's so much more here. There's so much more that's being said than just a guy that got swallowed up by a whale. And it's the same thing with Exodus. This is more than just a weird guy that talks to a burning bush. There's so much more here that's pointing to Christ, and we hope 
that in this story, you will get that significant uh, redemptive element. So the story of Exodus is a hinge point in the biblical narrative that is, as it not only gives a historical account of God's people, it also lays the necessary uh, groundwork for the arrival of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So when I, I ask the question, where do you turn in the Bible whenever you want to understand the story of redemption? If I had to guess, I think most of you would point to one of the Gospels, which is not wrong, but if you had asked a devout Israelite in the Old Testament period, are you redeemed, the answer would have been a most definite yes. And if you had asked, how do you know, they wouldn't point to Jesus because he hadn't come yet. They Instead, they would take... Uh, they would, you'd be taken aside to sit down somewhere where your friend would recount a long and exciting story, the Exodus story. That's the one that they would tell. For indeed, it is the Exodus that provided the primary model for God's idea of redemption. But we can't even begin to understand these first seven verses that we're going to look at today until we set up a little bit of a foundation. And by that, I mean... Going back to the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve one command, and he gave them uh, the command to be fruitful and multiply. And this was given before sin, but he was, they were given a command to be fruitful and multiply. But when, they did, when sin came into the world, it fractured their ability to be able to do it in the way that would honor God. And so what Adam could not do and what man is unable to do uh, uh, forthwith due to sin, God will accomplish by his mercy and grace in the line of Abraham who comes next. And so God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and he promises to multiply and increase his offspring forever. And God's promise to Abraham first comes in Genesis 12, but it's expounded on in Genesis 15 and 17. And we're going to read those here um, here right now, because it's it's a story that that is a bit comical at times, but can also be a bit perplexing. Because you got God giving a promise to Abraham that he's going to give him children, but there's a couple things going on here that would make that very difficult. His wife is very old and she's barren, and Abraham is not the most integral of guys. There's a lot of things that come into play here that would make this situation a bit comical and also um, cause them to raise their eyebrows at God's promise to give them, um, uh, give them children that would outnumber the stars in the sky, which is what he tells Abraham. But in Genesis 15, he expounds on this, and we'll see some of the, just pay attention because we're going to see some of this language in Exodus as God fulfills his promises. So this promise was given to, uh, to Abraham in Genesis 15, specifically verses 12 to 16, um, and it, it says this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and dark, uh, great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be affected, afflicted for 400 years. It's really important. Really important that they're going to be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, which we're going to see with the people of God. So mainly Jacob and his family, they come into Egypt. They leave Canaan and go to Egypt, a land that is not theirs, and they're sojourners. And they get to experience this incredible life that they have with their son, uh, Joseph, who is now the prime minister in Egypt at the time. They get special privilege, but that's not going to last for long. It's not going to last for long. Okay. 
and I want to get ahead of myself. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good age, and they shall come back uh, here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So realize what was just said, and this was said hundreds of years before it actually comes to fruition, but that you're going to have children and a family that are going to be sojourners in another, in, a, in another nation that is not their own. They're going to be afflicted for 400 years, which is exactly by the time they cross, uh, they're crossing the Red Sea, by the time they're moving in that direction, it, has been, it, would, it would have been 430 years. And, not, and they would bring judgment on the nation that they serve, so the ten plagues. And they were going to come out with great possessions, so they plundered Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. So hundreds of years prior to this, you see it coming to fruition that God's promise that he gave to Abraham rings true. And God expounds on this again, this same promise, uh, two chapters later in Genesis 17, when he says this. And again, pay attention to the language. When Abram was 99 years old, this is before he had Isaac. I told you he was old. I told you he was old. He's 99 years old, and Sarah is just like him. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant, my promise, my bondage is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, not one nation, not Israel, not one nation, a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your, your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Pay attention to that language. Exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, never-ending covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So we see the partial fulfillment of this in the very, in the very first verses of Exodus. That we see that God is going to multiply him greatly, make him into a multitude of nations, and that they're going to be exceedingly fruitful. Now, when we look at those first verses that we're going to look at here in Exodus, we see God's promise being fulfilled. And it says this, Exodus 1, verses 1 to 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Nephtali, God, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. I love the, like, transition there. Hey, he's already there. Okay, he's dead. It's a, like, great story, man. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel, remember I told you to pay attention to the language, were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And Israel was fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly strong. And this is an understatement of the century. 
Jacob comes into Egypt with 70 people, and by the time we're looking at Genesis or Exodus chapter 12, they have grown to 600,000 men. And really, if you want to get somewhere in the accurate ball, uh, ballpark of what that looks like, just triple that for women and children. Somewhere in the tune to 1.8 to 2 million people from 70. They had grown exceedingly strong. They were fruitful, and God did keep his promises. And this is a promise that had gone on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph and now to the people of God. These are promises that God gave to them and are being fulfilled hundreds of years later. In fact, generations have passed at this point since Joseph had died and the children of Israel find themselves in Egypt hanging on to a promise, a promise that God is and was fulfilling right before their very eyes. They got to actually experience and see that God always keeps his promises, which leads me to my first point, which is God's promises are always kept, even if they don't happen the way that we want. So God had kept his promises, but just think for a minute about all the things that had, that had happened leading up to this. And so if, if you don't know your Old Testament at all, let me cover just a few things that probably weren't ideal. And when God gave them that first promise, they, they probably weren't expecting this to be a part of their story. The first is that Abraham ended up having a child with his servant out of a, an agreement that he made with his wife because she was barren. Sarah was barren and 99 years old whenever she was having her first child. Sodom and Gomorrah happened. So Lot lost his wife. They were almost beat to death by the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jacob unknowingly married the wrong sister, worked for seven years to marry one sister, got swindled into marrying the other one, and then had to work another seven years to get the wife that he actually wanted. Now he's got two wives, and they're both sisters. Probably not what he thought his life would look like, I would imagine. Jacob swindled his brother Esau into securing the birthright from, uh, from Isaac. Joseph was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. He was accused of making a move on the Pharaoh's wife and thrown into prison. And now the people of Israel are about to enter into a period of slavery because Joseph loses his clout when a new Pharaoh comes in and doesn't know who Joseph is. So God keeps his promises to his people, but it di- I would imagine, I'm not sitting across the table from them right now, but I would imagine that that probably didn't go the way they thought it would. That it probably looked just a little bit different, and if they were honest, probably a little more difficult than they thought it would be. But the point here is that even in the darkest of times, God keeps his promises. And these are some of, the, some of the things that I just told you, those are just some of the stories that line this promise. There are many more, but the point remains, God's promises will always be kept. There are going to be things that happen to each and every one of us, and it will be tempting to think that if we just took the controller, we could do it better. If we took, if, if we took control of everything going on, we could do it the right way, and our way is the best way. But rather than desire control, we should lean into the promises of God that are always true and that he always keeps. Listen to some of the promises that are given to us from the word of God by him. In Hebrews 13, 5, 6, God promises to never forsake us. He's never going to leave us. 
God promises to meet all of our needs in Matthew, 5, Matthew 6, 31 through 33. God promises to always hear his children and hear their prayers. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in Exodus here in a minute. In, in 1 John 5, 14 through 15, God promises to forgive you of your sin. And this is found in 1 John 1, 19, 1, 9. But I would also say that looking back into the Old Testament, in Psalm 106, you see that God tells David that he does not deal with us according to our iniquities. This is before Jesus. Isn't that an amazing truth that God does not deal with us according to our iniquities? Why? Because if he did, he would never deal with us. There, we always have them. Sin will always be present, redeemed or not. Until Jesus returns and makes all things new, we will always have sin. If sin, if the, the removal of sin was a requirement for God to deal with us, he would never deal with us. What an amazing truth it is that God chooses to not deal with us according to our iniquities. God promises to work all things for your good, Romans 8, 28. So when life gets less than ideal, just like the people of Israel, when things don't go the way that we expect, we can keep going because God keeps his word. And this is what the people of God had to continue to tell themselves throughout the story of Exodus. Like I said earlier, by the time they were crossing the Red Sea, for 430 years, the people of Israel endured slavery at its worst. In human terms, in all, from our perspective, it would have been virtually impossible for Israel to leave Egypt alive, much less plunder the Egyptians like they did and attain land for, the, uh, land for themselves across the Jordan. Egypt and the Pharaoh represented the most dominant and powerful empire in the world at the time. For a people like Israel to dominate them the way that they did on their own was virtually impossible. And then more than that, not only did God redeem them and keep his promises, but God took the gods of Egypt and diminished them and squashed them with his hand, his mighty hand, and he got glory over Pharaoh who desired all the glory. And the truth is, is that what we learn from the story is that we learn that when God puts his promises in place, there's a plan that comes with it. And that plan always has a purpose, which is my second point. That God's plans always have a purpose, even if we can't see it. I think it's really common. I mean, I, like for me with my children, I'll tell my son and my daughter not to do things. And I, I always get the why. And sometimes I answer you know, in a way that they can understand. Sometimes they just won't understand. But they have to just trust that, my, that the plan that I have for them is a good plan. That I want, that I want their good more than anything else. And me saying no to something or yes to something is really, at the end of the day, for their good. And sometimes when we can't see what God is up to or what God is doing, we just have to trust that he's good. We have to trust that he has a purpose. We have to trust that he has a plan. Could you imagine being born into slavery and never knowing freedom at all? For 400 years, the people of Israel endured this unyielding oppression from Pharaoh. There was daily suffering as far as the eye could see, and they would pray and pray only to, be, only to feel like they were never to be heard. Honestly, it probably would have felt like God was absent. 
if nothing else, it wouldn't have seemed like he had a plan with a purpose. However, just like his promises, his plans always have a reason, even if we can't see it. In chapter 2 of Exodus, we learn that God certainly was listening and heard the cries of his people with a plan to raise a redeemer. And this, te- this text specifically says, in verse 23, I believe, it says that God knew, he knew what was going on. Specifically said, and God knew. What an incredible word to use, because this knowledge was more than just mere awareness. William Edgar said it this way about this passage. To be known by God is to be loved, to be in the best place you could possibly be. This is because God bears the burden, not the people. Knowledge here means full acknowledgement and commitment to intervene. These were God's covenant people with whom he had made a promise with. His plans are always with a purpose and they never fail. God knowing what was going on, what was happening, hearing the cries of his people, just because they couldn't see God moving doesn't mean that he wasn't. He wasn't. Just because they couldn't feel God doing things in that moment doesn't mean that he was idle. We serve a God that is active. We don't serve a God that is transcendent and non-active in our lives and inactive. We serve a God that is imminent, that is present in every single moment, even in the dark times. He's present. Ultimately, whenever we, whenever the people of God were looking at these, during these 430 years, were looking at what was happening to them and what seemed like the lack of movement, ultimately they were going to see God before their very eyes flex on the powers that be by coming down and delivering his people out of the hand of Pharaoh. And this is what you see in that, in that, in that chapter. <coughs> you see God telling Moses that not only did he hear the cries of his people, not only, did he, uh, not only did he remember his covenant, but that he was going to descend down and go with them into Egypt and to conquer not only Pharaoh, but the gods that they served also. And that's incredible because that points to something that we have today, which is Jesus. It leads me to point number three. God's promises to Israel are not fulfilled in Exodus, but they're fulfilled in Christ. Abraham was not promised to merely be the father of one nation, but of many nations. And in Christ, those nations are gathered underneath the lineage of Abraham, and now we can bear his name, Christ's name, overall. What you see, you see this incredible moment in the, in the book of Genesis where in the Tower of Babel, all the, all the tongues were confused and they were sent off to different nations. But at the very beginning of the book of Acts, all of these nations in Christ are brought together, and they now, they now all hear one language, which is incredible. It's incredible because now, just as God promised Abraham that he was going to be the father of many nations, now in Christ, all those nations become one underneath the banner of Christ. We see the clear fulfillment of this text in the life and ministry of Jesus. So Jacob came into Egypt with 70 people to be fruitful, multiply, and to essentially spread the good news of a good God that they serve. Jesus sent out 70 disciples to carry the message of the gospel into the world. It's an incredible parallel that you see between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And lastly, just as God promised to come down to deliver the people of Israel out of the hand of Pharaoh, he also came down to deliver us out of sin. 
Jesus' triumphant death and resurrection was the greater exodus. Jesus would pass through the waters of death in order to deliver his people from bondage, uh, from their sin, and take them to a new heaven and new earth, to a new promised land. That's what we get in Christ. We get the new exodus. When we look at the story that we're about to embark on uh, this year in this sermon series, don't just see an amazing story about Moses being the redeemer of the people of Israel. Instead, see a good God that redeemed people then, but is redeeming people forever in Christ. And that's true and available for each and every one of us today. Friends, I want to close with this. And I hope that these are some things that you can be reminded of as, we, as you go about your week and as you embark on your new year. For one, God fulfills his promises. Any promise that God makes, he keeps. And the Bible is chock full of them. God fulfills his promises. Wherever we are in our lives, we are living out the purposes of God for his glory and our joy. Every moment that we have come our way is an opportunity to give glory to a God who is not out of control, but very much in it. Very much in control and very much wants to use every situation to direct your gaze and your worship and your heart to him. Exodus is not merely a story of Israel. It's a story of us. It is our story. It is our story. It is a story that points to our redemption. It is a story that points to our freedom from sin. It's a story about God remembering his covenant with us, hearing our cries and facing down our enemies, just like he did with the people of Israel. It's a story about God overpowering the the spiritual and earthly powers that seek to enslave us on a daily basis. And it's a story about God reminding us that he's faithful even whenever we're faithless. And so my hope and my prayer for you, not only this week, but this year, as your heart would be marked by a deep joy for what Christ has done, that he has redeemed you from the slavery of sin, but also a deep passion to be able to tell that to the world around you, that the story of redemption is ongoing. It didn't stop in Exodus and it didn't stop in the New Testament. It's now, today. The story of redemption continues on and we get the opportunity to live that out. If you stand, I'll pray for us. Father God, there are so many moments in our life that tempt us, that tempt us to live a life that is faithless instead of faithful. Tempting to want, tempting to encourage us to grab the controls and try to make this work on our own, to get our own desired outcome instead of what you would have. And so God, we ask that as we study your word and as we go about our weeks, God, that you would be the Lord of our lives, that we would trust in a good God who keeps his promises, that we would trust in a good God that always has a plan with a purpose. And ultimately, God, that we would trust in you, Jesus. We would trust in what you've done for us and that we don't have to earn our salvation or find it anywhere else, but that we can run to you. And so, God, as we uh, as we go about this week and as we start a new year, would you incline our hearts to worship you? Don't allow our hearts to be like 
what we're going to read in the Old Testament where we, where they would go to other idols and create their own. Don't allow our hearts to depart from you. But God, lift up our eyes. Let our gaze be directed at you and what you've done for us. And help us to walk in the freedom and joy that was intended by your work on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.